All your favorite CBC podcasts are now available on YouTube. The best in award-winning true crime investigations, hilarious comedies, vibrant pop culture conversations, and even more audio series are all available on CBC Podcast's YouTube channel. You'll also find exclusive video first episodes, YouTube shorts, and behind-the-scenes content from our hosts and producers that you can't find anywhere else. So if YouTube is your go-to source for podcasts, just search CBC Podcasts and hit subscribe, and you'll never miss the latest update. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Today on the show, when you think about it, lots of the biggest bands and musicians in the world have that one album that takes on a life of its own. That one record that becomes a legendary milestone and the stories around how it was made become almost mythical like Fleetwood Mac and Rumors or NWA and Straight Outta Compton or for U2, uh, The Joshua Tree. And in Canada, for the legendary country rock band Blue Rodeo, it's their album Five Days in July. And here's why. Up until that point in 93, Blue Rodeo were a heavier band, like louder guitars, like a rock band with a little bit of country music in there. They sounded like this. So it's 1993, you go down to the record store, you buy the new tape from Blue Rodeo, you unwrap the cellophane, you put it in your car stereo, and right away you hear something different. That's a song called Five Days in May from Blue Rodeo, the leadoff track from their album Five Days in July. Try and keep it straight. Here's what I was saying about the creation of the album being as important as the album itself. After years of making conventional records in conventional studios, this record was recorded in a farmhouse in rural Ontario belonging to the co-leader of the band, Greg Keeler. And instead of everyone playing their parts separately or a bunch of music added to the songs afterwards, they were recorded in the living room with everyone playing together. People hanging out, dogs on the floor, tape machine whirring in the background, capturing the magic in real time. People have spent a lot of time trying to figure out what it is about the way this record was made that made it so well-loved and so good. Was it the informality, the community? What made that record one of the best-loved and best-selling Canadian albums of all time? So... On the record's 30th anniversary, we asked Jim Cuddy and Greg Keeler, the two leaders of Blue Rodeo, to come into our studio and talk about how Five Days in July came together. I loved having them here. Here's our conversation. Welcome to the show. How are you? Good. Thank you very much. Very good. Thanks for having us. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have you. 30 years, Jim. What do you make of that? <laughs> well, it, it, uh, I mean, in a way it seems like 30 years, but in a way it doesn't seem like 30 years. The, the memory of making the record... And the way we felt making the record is certainly pretty vivid. Yeah. So it's not, uh, and of course those songs are still those songs changed our band because they added so much to our to our um, uh, collective instrumentation that we are still that we're still involved with. So so it's uh, you know it's it's still very contemporary for us. 
Does does it, does the album mean something to you, Greg? Special? I mean, it means a lot to your fans and, and people like me. Does it mean anything particular to you? It was a a pretty special record, you know, for me. I sort of knew it at the time. There was just this great convergence and collections of talents that were contributing to the songs we were writing, and uh, you know, my songs came from a complicated and somewhat painful love life at the time. So there's my my songs were broken up between the songs of of sorrow of the the breakup and then the songs of of meeting a new person and falling in love. So I have sort of this uh, opposite type songs on the record speaking to do two different people. Right. In addition to like the meaningfulness, and we're going to talk a little bit about like the sound of the record and how meaningful it was. When you listen back to it, you also hear something very personal that you were going through. Well, it's it's a beautiful sounding record, and yeah. a lot of that goes to Doug McClement, who is a sound engineer, who had a mobile truck, Comfort Sound, and we did we did Diamond Mine with him as well, and he just set up in in the driveway, and he had uh, his his beautiful truck there and his great ears and he just recorded beautiful sounds and when we went to put it mix it put it all together there were all these gorgeous overtones and and the leakage from the living room right it it, it spreads the sound around in a in in a sort of a oral illusion mm. you know it's very 3d mm. in its rawness we could watch the spaceships maybe they It was a different record than the ones you were making before, Jim. Like, like, how were you guys feeling before you made this record? <laughs> That's a leading question. You know how we were feeling. We. <laughs> I don't know how you were. No, feeling. you weren't. Oh, no, okay. No. So I'm sorry because I thought that was part of the legend. We 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 had been touring. <laughs> We'd been touring Lost Together, and it was that was an incredibly exhausting tour. It was our loudest tour. Yeah. But that was a tour where we gave out earplugs at the at the merch desk, and at the end of the night we would ask. How many people left because of the volume? That loud, and really? it was if it was fewer than twenty, we thought, yeah, we did okay. So we, we were, were both double voxes. Uh, right. Excuse me, I was not a double vox. You were a double vox. What were you? I just had one vox at, at that point. I hadn't even double amped. But yeah. we were loud band. But you we weren't were, plugging acoustic guitars into the system. We were not. We were loud. We were loud band. We were loud band, and there was no restraint on the volume. But that it wasn't even that. It was that we played. All over the place. We went to Australia repeatedly. Like, you know, I think. Oh God. Anyway, we did. We did so much playing that when we finished that tour, we were just exhausted from everything. We were exhausted from touring, and we were exhausted from just sonically. We were exhausted. So when we did demos, which we did at Greg's farm with in this system, thinking, let's just do something different. That's that's more pleasant. Let's not go into a studio and be harangued by a producer let's oh, just but stop there that's okay. that's interesting okay it's more common now mm -hmm. it's more common now for home recording gear to, yeah. to happen it didn't happen a lot back then yeah. i mean we can talk about historical records that were made that way 
if you don't skip over, we didn't want okay. to go into a studio with a producer. Right. Why now? What was going on? I think that we had felt that we were uh, not in complete control when we were in a studio, paying a lot of money, worried about budget, um, and and not having complete control over everything. Like we, you know, after we made Outskirts, we kind of wanted to take the process over ourselves entirely. Yeah, and also. We just needed a break. We did not want to go into a business atmosphere. We wanted to go somewhere where that was enjoyable and fun. And Greg's place is that. And was. <laughs> it still is. It still. <laughs> Nobody's welcome anymore. Yeah, but at that time, away. it was very well at that Don't time. show up at the door listening <laughs> to this. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can get through the gate. Yeah, but uh, but we just wanted to do something. It was the summer, and we wanted to. We just wanted to reward ourselves for all the work we've been doing. And and initially, I mean, Greg says he knew from the beginning it was special. But initially, what we were doing was doing a side record. We told the record company, we don't want the big budget. We just, we just something smaller. We just do this as a side project, and then we'll come back and do a, a real record for you. I have a, I want to play one of the songs. Can we do that? I think that's, you know, your CBC. <laughs> I hope we have the technology. Yeah, I think you, can, you got somebody there. Okay, cool. Whenever you're ready. <laughs> I never. And though I know I shouldn't call It just reminds us of the cost Of everything we've lost Bad timing, not so So that's Blue Rodeo and Bad Timing. Jim, what was a typical day like? <laughs> hmm. Well, uh, I don't think I stayed over, so I think I'd come in the morning and... Uh, Everybody be getting up and they'd be having breakfast. Like there was a lot of people that camped out tents and there was a, I mean, one of the big controversies was there was a dog controversy. So my friend Rob had a, had a big uh, golden lab and our pedal steel player had a little horrible little dog. And, uh, <laughs> and there was a, 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 an argument about you got to keep your dog, you know, away from my dog. And so, so it was, you know, it was kind of like a country bickering. Which was which was really funny, um, but you'd get there and everybody'd be up around having breakfast, making coffee. We'd probably get seated, like we all had little places, you know, with comfortable armchairs, mm -hmm. and we, we were playing to monitors. And uh, um, there was a little bit of tenting. I think you were tented at the end, right? A little bit. Yeah, everybody had their own gobos and blankets yeah, around. A little them. bit, but you could hear everything. You could, you, we could play live. You weren't isolated from one no, another. No, not particularly. And we like sang a, with monitors. And we sang with monitors. So you were like a band. You we were, were like a making band. records. Yeah. yeah, that was the most comfortable yeah. way for us to perform live and record. Yeah, and we were playing in the round, and it was also, I mean, as you just heard, it, it was pretty gentle music. Yeah. And and uh, and it was spontaneous. Like we didn't. <clears throat> everybody, since they were live recordings, everybody had to get their part right. Because if they didn't, we had to start again. We had to do it right. again. There was no d going in and punching in your guitar no. part afterwards. No, right? you couldn't. Oh, Everything was in, in, in overhead mics. And uh, so, I mean, everybody was ready. And they, it, we didn't have to do many takes. We pretty much do two a day. So we'd, we'd work, I don't know, from like 11 to 2, take off, have lunch. Two come, a day. Come back at 4 or 5. And if and, I may, it, most of the band was really high. Yeah, while we're making this record, Jim wasn't. Right. No. We called him Jimmy the Square, yeah. and and he was sort of, come on, let's let's get back at it, right? Right. And we did two a day. Yeah. 
and it would, come on, we can still we can get three a day on the last day if we. I don't think it was that bad. But I, I know that's certainly something I've done in the past, but I don't think I did it so much on that record. The worst. It was pretty relaxed. <laughs> it was a pretty relaxed pace, and uh, and we were able to just, you know, we just play it, and then we go outside and listen back at. Uh, in uh, at uh, Doug's truck, and it was pleasant. There's a pool, and it's a nice valley, yeah. and you know people just hanging out. So, what was going through your mind, Greg, when you were going outside in the night and listening to the playback of what you worked on that day, and like say bad timing came on? Like, what was on your what was on? What was oh, going he through didn't your even mind? listen to my songs. Ask him about okay. One of his what songs. was going through your mind when you were listening to these songs back in the nighttime? Well, every other one was a good song. <laughs> Why is that true? No, um, don't don't undercut your own songs. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and As I was just listening to it there, yeah. I I listened. I love the sound of it. Just the, the drums sound beautiful. The bottom end is gorgeous. But I think on this record, Jim and I, um, it wasn't really a conscious choice. It was just the nature of the songs. There's a greater intimacy in our singing together. There's a. It's just bare boned, you know, simple harmonies, and but our voices are emotionally sympathetic to each other. And it's just a nice buzz. You know, it's like, that feels good to listen to. And so it was, it was, it was a, a deepening of our harmonic bond. Jim, were you listening to in the nighttime going like, I wonder what people are going to think about this? It's really different? No, you know, I think that I really went into it thinking this will be a very enjoyable, smaller record for us. And then we'll go back. And then we'll go back and do more electric stuff. When I first, I remember listening, I don't know why, but I think we must have done Know Where You Go early because I remember listening to it outside. And the the truck is small, so I, I had to listen outside of the truck. And... And it was the first time I ever recognized that acoustic instruments recorded are just as powerful as electric instruments recorded. Like they, they're, 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 there's a, that's a great equalizer, putting it down on tape. And it was, it was magnificent. I thought, wow, this is really something. And it didn't occur to me that we needed to bring the record company out and say, oh, this is going to be really special or anything like that. But I thought, whatever this is going to become, it's going to be something that's really, really good. And nothing can compare to how I feel when I'm by your side. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to my conversation with Jim Cuddy and Greg Keeler from the band Blue Rodeo. We're talking about their legendary album, Five Days in July, which came out 30 years ago. So in this next part, we talk about making acoustic music in the era of like the MTV Unplugged concerts, which were a big deal at the time. And we dug up a little surprise for Jim Cuddy. Take a listen. We, I have a clip I want to play you. So this record came out during the era of like the Unplugged, MTV Unplugged era of the early 90s. And I, I know that was never really part of your calculus to make something like that. Uh, I want to play something Jim told the CBC in 1993 about oh. that. Take a listen to this. If there's a really negative connotation, it's that um, 
It's that there it appeals to a certain listener that just can't stand the volume, and you're and then you worry that what you've done is taken that one that final step down to softening your music, and yeah. you are forever relegated to <laughs> elevators. Elevator. You know? <laughs> you're there. All right. That's that's Jim Cuddy in conversation with Peter Downey on Morningside from almost uh, thirty thirty. That years was a ago. Jim impersonator, if you ask me. That was it very nasally. Yeah. That, <laughs> <laughs> But it sounds, like, it sounds like, like you avoided the trap, though. You were a little nervous about making elevator music. I guess so. I mean, I think that just sounds like in, in retrospect. But but it never occurred to me when we were making it that we were making elevator music. But the first time I heard Try in an elevator was one of the happiest moments of my <laughs> yeah, life. Sure. Like, yeah. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And then to hear it at grocery stores and stuff. Grocery stores like, is a big oh, one. Yeah. And you look around thinking... Do you know this is me? You do you know that we're part of your brainwashing right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So at one point you aspire to be elevator music, but uh, yeah, I, I guess it was that was a big part of Impl- Unplugged, but that's certainly not what we were doing. But I also we didn't have a huge uh, background of knowledge in in acoustic music. Right. We, we didn't have like that's... even when we even when we assembled all these instruments, I'd never played harp before. I just learned how to play harp. To do this record, that's really interesting to me because I see that's how I see Blue Rodeo. Blue Rodeo to me are an acoustic guitar and an electric guitar band, right. like a mandolin and a Stratocaster band. You know, we became that. It took us years. I, I, I want to play another clip from uh, from the record. Just to take a listen to this. What's This Love by Blue Rodeo featuring Sarah McLaughlin. Craig, what goes through your mind listening to that? Well, just how much I love Sarah McLaughlin. Yeah. How much I love singing with Sarah McLaughlin. Uh, and not to deny, you know, I love singing with Jim Cuddy. And you I love the singing. The damage is done, Greg. Just did, <laughs> you already said it. You said it. We just did a tour with uh, <laughs> Melissa McClelland, and she was singing Sarah's part in all the five days stuff. But, um, you know, I had befriended Sarah early in the summer. And we had been hanging out in Morin Heights, and she was making one of her records, and I was sort of strumming guitar on the demos. And then she came over to my place and and sang with us. And it was just, it it just took it up a bit. And also it made it different in a, in a special way that... Uh, you know, and Sarah McLaughlin wasn't Sarah McLaughlin. I was about she, to ask. She wasn't Sarah. She wasn't quite Sarah McLaughlin. No, then. right, right, right. You know what I mean, right? She wasn't. Yes, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think she the was on her she way. Was making, yeah, the, yeah. Fumbling towards ecstasy was what made her the Sarah McLaughlin you're talking about. Yeah. Right, right. Did you that when you say it brought it brought you up another notch, like uh, a good take? The 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 bar for a good take gets raised when Sarah McLaughlin's on the record. Is that is that what you're saying? Well, uh, to a certain extent, you know there were there were just people like like Anne Bourne playing the cello. You know that was just a casual invitation, and we sit down to do this song, 
and she plays all these harmonics that just change the sort of landscape. I guess that's what a lot, this record is a different landscape for us. It's almost dimensionally different. And, and then the bands in the living room, Sarah and I were in the kitchen behind a, a sound blanket and you know we're, we're singing these choruses and I remember a person opening the kitchen door walking in not really paying attention looks up and goes oh! <laughs> and then runs out and you can hear the door slam and you can actually hear the door slam on the record you know it hasn't hit me yet you can hear the neighbor's dog barking <laughs> you know those sort of things I, I really enjoy These are things that most the perfectionists and people who tell us the way the record should be made would edit out and things that they would get rid of. And they're, you know, you want to control everything. But the, the accidents became and the incidental things became part of the beauty of the record. Well, there's many schools that, that we all go to. You know, you could be David Foster and, mm-hmm. and give Neil Young sh- for not singing in key. Yeah. Or you can be Neil Young and record in front of a fireplace. And when you're listening, turn back, turn up the left barn. You know. <laughs> <laughs> That's wherever you're placed. When you you mentioned earlier, you said I'm, I'm not going to bring the record label out to this. You know, I thought we were making just sort of a we're making a, a quiet record before we make our next big record. When the time came to get this thing out and put it out, was there any trepidation inside the band or outside the band in putting this thing out? No, we knew at that point. I remember driving out to Greg's place with Kim Cook, who was the head of, uh, I guess he was the head of... Food. <laughs> no. <Catering. laughs> no, he was, probably the, he was probably head of radio. He did so many, he was the head of so many things, but I think he was the head of radio then. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he said to me, I've been listening to this record and it's really powerful. And I was nodding because I kind of knew that. And I think that was our first indication that it was going to be... Uh, it wouldn't be a it wouldn't be a tepid release. It would be a it would be a full on. This is something different, and it's really good release. Did did that happen? Mm-hmm. How, how, what changed for the band after the record came out? Well, I don't think that we really noticed the change because we'd already had. I mean, Lost Together was a pretty successful record, and when this came out, I don't even remember what was the first single. Five days. Five days was the first single. Yeah. So you I insisted. <laughs> I'm sure I didn't. But oh, no. Anyway. That was forceful. Okay. So I insisted that it would be five days. Um, but, I mean, it just rolled together with, with, with videos and, and, you know, obviously Hasn't Hit Me Yet was a, was a video of the year and all that kind of stuff. So it, it really rolled out with a lot of pretty initial impact and success. So, But I, I don't even think that wasn't even what we were paying attention to. We wanted to devise this tour that was going to be, our. that's when our stage setup became like a living room. We had rugs and we had lamps and couches. That was <laughs> and, nice. Yeah, it was great. So we wanted to replicate Greg's living room on the road. So our we had a whole truck that was just full of, of rented living room furniture. And I know that we went out to smaller places than we could have played. So we played theaters that were that we thought were really homey and would be really nice. 
First part of my conversation with Jim Cuddy and Greg Keeler from the band Blue Rodeo. Coming up, we talk about why their album Five Days in July is a monumental moment for them as well as their fans. Pay attention to that word I used, monumental. And we have our yearly group therapy session. Plus, Chaos debuts some new music. More Q coming up. I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. It's emotional to think back on that time, and it's, it's emotional to sing these songs and to think of what we've done and where we've been. And, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a monumental and very deep experience for me. Sun breaks. Oh, I can't wait till I be on. Tom Power, you're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with Jim Cuddy and Greg Keeler from the band Blue Rodeo. We've been talking about their album Five Days in July, which is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. Five Days in July, if you're not familiar with it, is one of the best-loved and best-selling Canadian music records. It's gone six times platinum. And the record was a bit of a departure for the band. They were the sort of like louder rock band. And all of a sudden, they released something softer, more subtle, more intimate. They recorded it at Greg's farmhouse in rural Ontario. And that album has taken on legendary status in Canada. And that's fine for me to say from the outside as an observer. But I wanted to know what changed for the band when that album came out. Here's what Jim Cuddy had to say. It was a game changer because it was a time, you know, if that was our fifth record, it was a time at which most bands start to decline a little bit. And... Ours went the other way. So we were conscious of that. Um, but we were most conscious of just how much fun it was to go out and play these songs, to play the whole record and and set up and have couches on the stage and, and have lamps that you could turn on and off. And so we were, we were, we, it just expanded our instrumentation so much. We didn't, we hadn't done this before. Did it change the way you made future records? Well, what was the next record? Yeah, because we went and made a, a real ponderous, uh, meandering record after five days. So in, in as much as that, we always went different routes after every record. You didn't want to follow the same formula that made this thing work out? I don't know. if, if Maybe not. Yeah. What's that Neil Young quote? Um, I started to realize I was getting to the middle of the road, so I swerved into the ditch. Yeah. Yeah. I've always liked it. It's the second Neil Young reference in the show today. <laughs> if you thought uh, you got away with Jim, only Jim uh, having an archival clip played for him, I have an archival clip of you too, Greg. Oh. I, I want to play something right now. So this is from 1993 <laughs> from the CBC program, Ear to the Ground. 
when you've been a friend of somebody a long time, you hold on to the aspect of when you met. Like that aspect is, is always going to be part of the relationship. And so there is an adolescent aspect to our relationship. And, uh, and that's a very funny thing because, you know, in life so much changes but so much doesn't change. What do you make of what you said? A, I think I can hear the crickets and, and all that stuff in the background, which is you, that, that, was, that footage was taken while you were making the record. Right. So that's the sound of the farm. What do you make of what you're saying there about the adolescent part of yours and Jim's relationship always being there? I think that at, at, at the heart of our relationship lies a, a, a couple of adolescents. And the, the information that we accumulated from our society and our schools and all the things that were, you know, chipping off the pieces of us to make who we are. And we shared that experience pretty intimately, um, even though we didn't know each other. But it was the same cultural references that we were brought up with. And so, you know, and we both have, at times, a mean, dark sense of humor. <laughs> and we're often only tolerated by each other. And people will leave the room, you know, because... They don't want to get in our crosshairs, mm -hmm. and they just get tired of us going on about, you know, nonsense. So, yes, there is something to that that I enjoy. I enjoy that it, it, it still has that I, I after all these years and all the stuff we've been through. I was going to ask if, if, you, if it's still there, because that was 93. That, that adolescent lo love is, is still there. Very much so. Jim, what do you make of it? <laughs> well, I will tell you that we only talk about our relationship when we come on this show. <laughs> we've done it damagingly and we've done it positively. But uh, I get paid by the label. Yeah. But, uh, Kim, Kim <laughs> Cook pays me to come on in. And, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is covered through OHIP. You don't know yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I think uh, it's, <laughs> it's true. We, we do share a <clears throat> bit of a, a cruel sense of humor and it's hard for people. But we don't really turn on each other anymore. We are much, much older now, and that's 30 years ago. And so we occasionally gang up on somebody <laughs> a little bit, and that's kind of fun and funny, but we pull back. We catch ourselves. If we see it. tears, we pull back. <laughs> and we don't want to hurt anybody. Um, but, you know, I think that there's so many things that bond us. We certainly have had this crazy experience together that can only really be shared with each other and, and with our fellow bandmates. And, uh, you know, we have the beauty of making music, and that's, that's incredibly rejuvenating every day. You did it. You did your once a year talk about your relationship <laughs> oh on the CBC. Oh. Well done, do you remember? Do you remember the first time we did... Uh, with Tom? Yeah, it was my, you know, it was my first day. It was his one? first day. And he asked, Jim, can you say something nice about Greg? <laughs> Which I did. <laughs> you did, you went on. And I was, in my own defense, I was in a high, a high yeah, diabetic state. Why do we have to go over this again? Because I remember this and, distinctly. And he said, and he says to me, Greg, can you say anything nice about Jim? And all you could hear was the wind passing. Wow. No, then you said, he's nice to the fans. <laughs> that's what you said that's what you said he's nice to the fans I think I said something about you know Greg is such a maverick he's, he leads us forward you know he's always trying things out he's nice to the fans oh that's terrible right? 
You say, yeah, and then you went on to say, from what I remember, is no, that's all he said. He said, <laughs> he said, I don't. He said, I don't know, man. I don't know, or something like that. <laughs> and I said, and I and I was twenty seven. And your first show, my first day first on the day. job, and really? yeah, my first well, day. Why did you on the ask job. us about our relationship? Because it was my first day, and I didn't know any better. <laughs> but I, <laughs> oh and I remember saying, and it got written up in the Toronto Star that I said, "Well, you know," <laughs> I said, "Greg, sometimes when you don't have anything." Uh, to say about your friend, it just means that the way you feel about them is so strong, it, it, goes, it goes beyond words. <laughs> and the Toronto Star writer wrote, he adeptly saved the moment. <laughs> oh so my God. In some ways, that's, that, that, that sealed it off. Well, that's good. <laughs> um, it's a monumental, I'm going to ask you this, each of you this before we go. It's a monumental album to me. It's a monumental album to... Canadians. It's a monumental album in this history, and it'll be in one of these albums that's talked about in the great history of Canadian records. It's going to be talked about in the same way the Harvest gets talked about. It's going to be talked about, you know, in, in the same way the Fully Completely gets talked about. It is talked about that way. Is it a monumental record for you? I'm going to start, Jim, I'll start with you. Yeah, it's a monumental record to me, and I see the way, because we've just been doing this tour, I see the way that it, it affects people, and it's it's uh, surprising, and uh, um, it's emotional to think back on that time, and it's, it's emotional to sing these songs and to think of what we've done and where we've been. And, and so, yeah, it's a it's a monumental and very deep experience for me. Greg? It, monumental means what? Well, I guess uh, akin to a monument, something that will last, something that has power, and something that stands up. That's a good um, definition. In, in the well, history. Did you think he was not going to be able well, to come up with that? Well, I didn't know. But oh, yeah. no, he's a pro now. Come on. This is not his first day, you know? <laughs> now, had you asked me that on my first day, I would have been out that door back back to Newfoundland on VOCM. But I don't have to do that. Well, then I can only say that that's flattering, right? Like, um, And I, I guess I love the idea that we made a record that is in that place that you were talking about. Yeah. You know, it's a little bit of a pinch me or, you know, how can this be, you know? But um, it's nice to know that something that you did will have some staying power with Tom Power. I, uh, that's the name of this show. Yeah. But the, uh, <laughs> the, 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 um, the, the way I think about it is that the, the years I've been doing this show since our first interview, it has, um, robbed me, and I think in a really positive way, of what you're talking about there, Greg, my ability to make myth out of things. I think we ascribe a lot more myth to art than we maybe need to when we talk about these things in these sort of extra musical ways that rob them of their simplistic beauty. That being said, I think we need to leave space for records for whatever reason, for when they came out, the time they came out, the way they sounded, the way the band's operated up until that point and the songs that were on it to have a lasting meaning to to a lot of us. Yes, so I, I, I hope you can take that in, you know. Well, talking to like lots of like younger musicians, yeah. you know, just how meaningful that record was for them. And yeah. just, the, you know, and I was shocked. I, you know, I didn't know that. I just thought, but that it has an, had an influence or has an influence on, on other musicians. That's very nice. I used to go steal it from my brother's bedroom when he would leave for the day. He would go out to like on a date or go to the mall or something like that, and I would go into his bedroom. He hated when I went into the bedroom, and I would go in and steal Five Days in July. And what form was it in? CD. CD. 
Yeah. And I would go into my bedroom and play it there. Wow. And then put it back in the case and make sure there was not a wrinkle. It didn't look like I took Good it. For you. And put it back and put it back. Um, congratulations on, on 30 years of it. And thanks for coming in for your yearly checkup. <laughs> thanks for having us, <laughs> Thank doctor. you very much, Tom. song Cynthia. Before that, you heard my conversation with Jim Cuddy and Greg Keeler from the band Blue Rodeo. The 30th anniversary of their album Five Days in July is now. The deluxe reissues are available on vinyl. Makes makes pretty good makes pretty good Christmas gift. The band will be playing an anniversary show at Massey Hall in Toronto. Oh, two of them on December 13th and 14th. I'll be there. Every day is Saturday Sunday morning, Sunday morning. Every day is Saturday night, but I can't wait for Sunday morning. Sunday morning. Walking down blocks, pictures don't stop, pictures inside my dumb. This is not me. From 2006, that's Chaos with Sunday Morning off his album Atlantis Hymns for Disco. 
My name's Tom Power. You're listening to Q. If you've been missing chaos in your life recently and wondering why he hasn't been putting out new music, well, you're not the only one. He'll tell you in a minute that he's working on a brand new album that's being executive produced by Drake. Drake also wondering why we haven't heard new Chaos music in a while. You know what? I'm getting ahead of myself. The whole reason I'm telling you this whole thing is that Chaos is releasing a vinyl version of that record, Atlantis, along with a new companion album called Atlantis 2 that's coming up in February. And we were talking to Chaos, and he mentioned he has some new music that no one's heard yet. So we invited him to come on the show. We got him on the line from his farm. I think it's in, in Brooklyn, Ontario. Speaking of rural Ontario, we got him on the line to tell you where he's been and to play some new music. Here's Chaos. Welcome to the show. How are you? How you doing, brother? Good to hear from you. Good nice to hear your voice. Nice yeah. to hear your voice too. So back in 2006, when Atlantis came out, what were your what were your hopes for that record? What were you thinking about that record at the time? It was really just a certain time in Toronto. You know, I started hanging out with a lot of. I kind of, George Rebellion was more of like a hip hop record. This this found me like hanging out with like Feist and like Sam Roberts and like that whole scene was like burgeoning. So it was like, I, the, I really felt the influence of doing something beyond just rap music. And so I just went for it, you know? Well, what did this record do for your career? I think more than anything, it just allowed a kind of chameleonism. Mm. For me, I think I always did cross genre within a certain genre, but this one was just like kind of jazz. And then it went to like, you know, like it had all these influences I couldn't suspect because I was just going with it. So for me, it was like me truly in, kind of in, embracing the cross genre without thinking about it. It's, things were just starting to happen, you know. You say you love me, but then you turn and walk away. Not even born yesterday. So what's got you thinking about this record again and, and revisiting this record now in 2023? I, you know what? I think the blues. I think people use the term R&B all the time, but no one ever says rhythm and blues. You know, you don't get people say, hear, you don't hear people saying R&R for rock and roll. They say the full thing. But for some reason, R&B is this term, but I'm like, is there really blues in R&B anymore? Mm. So it's really, it's, it's influenced my writing, it's influenced my viewpoint of like where rock and roll is and hoping that can kind of have a resurgence where country music is, the blues, rockabilly, all that music is kind of being, not really lost, but it's not at the you know, center of pop music. So I think just the color blue and blue and Bob Dylan and Tangled Up in Blue and all of that. <laughs> this song, this song, Invulnerable, in we're going to play uh, on the show today. So help me understand this. This was a demo from around the time that Atlantis came out that you're now sort of reworking. Talk me through this song a little bit. Well, a lot of it is, you know, you, I don't know, you, you have some chords, you have an idea, you revisit it a year later, it's still not there. Two years later, okay, I, I got my head around it, then the topic comes up. So it's just been building. It's, it's a quarter idea that I've had that's been building for the last... 16 or 15 years. So for me, it was finally good to sort of get get a vocal idea down. When the label was like, do you have any music from that time? I went directly to that demo. She don't really love me. Cause she puts all her friends above me. I walk into the- and then my life situation created the like experiences. I guess I was too young to really figure out or didn't have the life experience to figure out what I wanted to say. And it just ended sort of leading towards more of a country. I wrote it up here, you know, out here in the country in a barn out here. So it just, it sort of just happened that I just 
find myself in a situation where I can actually figure it out. And when the sun comes up and the day reveals it's a bluff, you know she loved me most of all. My gun is in the holster and I'll blow them all away. Hey ho, I'm invulnerable. What what is what is the song about? You know, I'm not going to do the whole artist thing. I don't want to say and then like, nah, <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't want to ruin people's perception. It's a girl, it's about a girl that I love who put me through a lot to see if she could put me through a lot as it ends up being. And I, I, I made it through. So it's just the idea that you can sort of, if you just, if you stick with something and if you, if you love somebody and if you basically become invulnerable and not quit and not respond or not be tit for tat or vindictive it kind of you kind of love always wins in the end to be cliche you know what i mean that's that's a beautiful thing and it's a, it's a it's a beautiful song and it's it's a, it's um it's a more acoustic song than i've heard from you in in a while now um you know i just saw this andre 3000 thing where he's like i'm done rapping cuz i don't know what i'm going to be talking about anymore i think as we all mature and grow up you know i have lots of rap songs on my new record but i think I'm embracing singing more now. And I think that's how I started essentially is going across the country with just an acoustic guitar. And I think that's where I'm back. Strangely enough, I find myself back to that point now. So I'm just embracing it. And it's it's something that you have to kind of bear your soul. And I think sometimes that's really hard to do. So you have to be in a place where you really want to be that naked. Speaking of Atlantis, uh, not that long ago, you performed at Drake's Hip Hop Celebration in Toronto at History, which is a culmination of some of the legends of, of Toronto hip hop and, and Toronto R&B all on the stage at, at the same time. Um, you performed, I think you performed Sunday morning from this record, right, at that show. I did, I did. I was in the studio and I got the call from those guys and like we're doing this thing and I you know sometimes an artist as an artist you don't want to be you know it's the throwback show you know and I thought do I want to do this and then I heard who, uh, Julie Black was going to be a part of it and Socks was going to be there I'm like this is just a chance to celebrate everybody it's not really about me so I showed up and like because I was in the studio for the for the last couple of weeks my voice was kind of well rehearsed so I think I did a great show and something that I was reluctant about ended up being a really important moment, I think, for the city. So I've always sort of selfishly wanted to stay in my own lane. But I think that night, something about that night where it was like, and I, I love Socrates. He's like one of my collaborators. We have a couple songs together. So I really came out for him as well, you know, and the rascals who put me on in the game. Is that is that what leads to this new album coming out next summer, executive produced by Drake? Uh, all of that. Like he, you know, God bless his soul. He's he's always been a, a friend and a fan. And he just wanted, he just like, where's your new music? He demanded it. I'm like, well, you know. And he's like, I'm gonna executive produce this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pay for your record, like what whatever you need. And he he did just so. So the whole new record that comes out next year, August next year, is ex EP'd by him and kind of like overlooked by him. I'd say, you know, in fact, this song I sent to him was like he 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 loved it. He thought it was incredible. Is what I think he's got a, his finger on the pulse as well. I, it's a big reason why it's kind of the first kind of thing people are hanging for me in a while because he just loved it. So you kind of have to trust the kids. Can I say the kids? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I mean? You have to trust the kids, and he really loved it. So I thought, let me just go with this, and that was all part of the inspiration. I think artists grow up; they stop hanging out with other artists. They stop 
that's all part of it. You know, it's all part of who you are. is isn't just you. It's the culmination of your influences and like the competition and the like, you know, the collaboration, all of that keeps you changing and evolving. And when you, when you stop doing that, I think the music suffers. So I was just excited that people were, you know, wanted to, wanted me to still make music and still were excited about helping me make music. All that is, is inspiring. Well, I, I'm so excited. There's a new um, Atlantis 2 uh, coming coming out soon. Um, I'm excited that there's a new Full Chaos record coming out next summer. And I'm excited that people are going to be able to hear the song that I got to hear that I really love, the song Invulnerable. Can you do me a favor? Can you introduce it? Say, hey, my name is, and this is my song? Sure. Hey, my name is Superman, and I'm Invulnerable. <laughs> no, let me do it again. Let me do it again. I can't do that. I can't say that. Go, go, go. Uh, Hey, what's up? This is Chaos, and this is Invulnerable. You, you know I'm going to use both of them, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> Thank you, man. She don't really love me. Because she puts all her friends above me. I walk into the coffee shop. <laughs> I give her all the change that I got. The sun comes down and the big cowboys come around. You know she's gonna fall for it. She's more than an accomplice, she's a culprit. And when the sun comes up and the day reveals it's a bluff, you know she loved me most of all. My gun is in the holster and I'll blow them all away. Hey ho, I'm invulnerable. Hell no, I never let us go. I got money to blow But just know I'm invulnerable She got a recipe for disaster see But she's wild and free with a chaos be When she comes down na 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 And she won't clown with the rah 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 I wanna see her every day Hey New Chaos and a song called Invulnerable. It's the first single off his upcoming album, Atlantis 2. If you're in southern Ontario, you can catch Chaos DJ tonight at London Warehouse in London, Ontario with Shamir Anderson and Saturday with Scratch Bastard at Montreal Warehouse and the next night in Calgary at Sweet Loretta. That's it for Q this week. Q is produced by Ben Edwards, Vanessa Greco, Lise Hossein, Vanessa Nigro, Corey Nijawan, Gloria Omateo, Mitch Pollock, and Catherine Stockhausen. Our digital team is Amelia Ekbal, Shuli Grossman-Gray, and Vivian Rashad. Our podcast producer is Caitlin Swan. Our director is Matt or Matthew Murphy. Our engineer is Sam Hashemi. Our senior producer is Beza Seifa. And our executive producer, steering the ship, as they say, is the great... And McKeegan. My name is Tom Power. I'm the host of the show. If you want to get in touch with me, please send me recipes. I bought a bunch of frozen salmon. I don't know what to do with it. Drop me a line. Q at cbc.ca. Air fryer, maybe? Put it in the air fryer. I feel like I'm just not going to cook it very well. And I don't have, I'm not a patient man. Um, or drop me a line on Instagram. I'm at Tom Joe Power on Instagram. We'll see you soon. Later on.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.